0: Good stuff. Don't we have such a good worship team? Isn't that good? Amen. Praise God. Thank you. Good stuff. I'm glad I came to church today. Um, We are starting a new series uh, called Counterfeit Gods, and it's just going to be a short one from our normal uh, 10 weeks or 12 weeks or 15 weeks or 30 weeks, whatever they are. And um, we're going to be looking at The things that can remove God from our lives. How many know that your walk with the Lord is a day-by-day walk with God? And and there's things that can... Creep into our lives to, to, to remove God off the place that He needs to be in our life. Now, how many know that God needs to be number one in our life in, in every area of our living? And it's easy as we live through our, as we walk our daily walk with God and as, as we live our daily lives, it's easy for things to creep in and remove God. And, and one of the things that God desired amongst His people is that He would be their God, that there would be no other gods before Him. And so we're going to look at the, the, the different counterfeit gods, the different idols that can be set up in our lives, that can remove God from where he desires to be in, in our hearts. So if I were to ask you today, what is an idol? Because this is the one thing that God was very concerned, especially the Israelites, is that when they would go in the promised land, that they would begin to worship foreign gods or foreign idols. Now, idols isn't really, back then maybe that would be a pretty understandable but for today we're like you know what is an idol when we think of an idol you might think of some ancient statue that people bow down to and and when i think of that i my mind always goes back to the brady bunch remember when they went to hawaii and bobby found the little Tiki thing at the construction site, and then all supposedly all these bad things began to happen to them. How many remember? How many are old like me? Used to watch the Brady Bunch. Okay, um, and uh, if you're young here, kids, really good show. You got to watch it. Um, and in fact, Alice just died not too long ago uh, in that picture. Um, and and so what happened was they had this, and it was like bad. They supposedly they bad luck, and then they they had to take it back to the ancient you know burial ground and so on and so forth so so maybe we think of an idol that way or or maybe you think of an idol this way your mind goes back to the golden calf that Israel made for themselves when they were at mount Sinai when Moses was up on mount Sinai hearing from God and they began to build this golden calf that they began to worship, and then they were led into all kind of immorality. Now, let me give you the definition of what an idol is, okay? Yeah, it can be that. Yeah, it can be the little tiki thing that Bobby made into a necklace, but let me give you the definition of what an idol is. Here's the definition. It's anyone or anything that we give more power or more attention to than God. So, so here it is, ready? It's anyone or anything that we give more power or attention to than God. That is an idol. So what we end up doing is this. We give them access into our lives, thinking that they will give us security and happiness. So the lie that we believe about idols is that they're only bad things. Now, that's not necessarily true. Okay, we we Brady Bunch, they think that the idol produced bad things or the golden calf produced bad things because they disobeyed God, but they're not necessarily bad things. I like what Tim Keller says here, pastor in New York City. He says, "We think that idols are bad things, but that is almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely We are to expect that it can satisfy our deepest needs or hopes. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. And I like what Tim Keller says. He says, our hearts are idle factories. You see, what we're going to look into, we're going to look into... Not only what, what things do we worship, and, and, and the big three that we're going to tackle over the next couple of weeks are money, sex, and power. Those are the, the big things. But it's not just those things. What we have to discover, what God knows about us, is that the root is in our sick hearts. See, the human heart can take good things like a successful career or love or material possessions, even family, and turn them into Ultimate things. Can I get an amen? All right. So even good things, successful career, love, material possessions, even family, we can turn them into ultimate things. Our hearts defy them as the center of our life for this reason, because we think that they can give us significant security, safety, fulfillment if we obtain them. So what God told Israel. When he gave them the commandments in Exodus chapter 20, he says, have no other gods before me. Now, this beckons the question, what did God mean by other gods? Because we know there's no other God but God that's real, that's alive. Amen? So what does he mean by other gods? Gods. Well, let's look into Exodus chapter 20 because this is the root of what God was telling Israel. Here's where I want you to be careful. It's not necessarily other gods. It's the idols that we make out of them. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to look up at the screen. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 20 verses 4 and 5. Here is God's command to Israel, as he's establishing his relationship with them in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai, God tells them this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. How many know that God created all those things? So how can they be bad if God created them, right? Right or that is in the water, or under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Now listen, here's how God defines these other gods or idols. He defines them as anything that is in the world. So if we are not careful... We can see an idol as only material things that we make God out of, things. However, what God is saying here is that an idol is anything that takes a controlling position in our hearts. Follow me here. When we deal with issues and problems in our life, if we get to the root of what the problem is, if you dig around deep enough, you know what the problem is? It's an idle problem. We have allowed something to come into our life that has displaced. God and that, and we 're trying to solve it by other needs and God 's saying, "Listen, you can read all the books you want, and watch all the TV programs you want. The problem is a heart problem you 've allowed an idol to be set up in your heart that has displaced me from being sole authority in your life, and so we know that the heart is wicked that we should never underestimate what it can do. Can I get an amen, so as much listen, we love to talk about how how good we can be, right? That's good. That's all the nice, fuzzy feelings and how wonderful and how good people are and how we can do nice things for other people. We like talking about that. But as much potential as I have to do good, I have to understand that my heart and I have to realize that I have just as much potential to do evil. Now, we don't like to hear that because that's not warm and fuzzy. It doesn't make me feel good, Pastor, right? Right? But until we come to that realization, we will always underestimate the proclivity of my heart. Don't underestimate it. God didn't underestimate it with Israel. He knew the proclivity of their heart. He just didn't let them go. He set up guardrails around their life because he knew the proclivity of our hearts to wander. Right? Right? He knew that. So, so as much as I have the potential to do good, I also have the potential to do evil, to destroy marriage, to make wrong choices. So this understanding, what it does is it not keeps us under... Or keeps us under God's thumb from walking in freedom. In fact, it's just the opposite. It keeps us at bay. It keeps my life at bay. It keeps me sober. It keeps me wise. It keeps me alert. This is how Paul addressed the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10-12. He said, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. That is why I want to deal with this topic over the next couple of weeks on counterfeit gods. And the first one I want to deal with, because I believe this is at the root of all our problems, of all human problems. This was at the root of why Satan fell from heaven, and it's the problem of power or pride. And and this is an idol that can so easily creep into our lives if we don't keep it at bay. And so uh, let me explain it this way, if some of you remember this. How many of you, when you were kids, you played king of the hill? You'd find this little hill, and then you would. I, I remember um, we. <laughs> I remember at Seneca Elementary School in Arundelcoy, we had the old styled outdoor equipment. How many remember that? Those were just accidents waiting to happen. Remember the slides that were like eight stories high, no guardrails, and you just slide down that thing like eighty miles an hour. Especially, it was fun when you had shorts on. Remember. <laughs> Okay. Nobody's old like me. Remember those days? And you get burned all the way down if the sun was out. How many remember the jungle gyms? We had a jungle gym that I think was eight stories high at Seneca Playground. And they've since got rid of all those because of all the lawsuits, particularly because of me. And here's the reason why. You'd climb those things, and we would be like, who could get to the top of the jungle gym first and then stand on top of it, and then we'd yell out, king of the hill right okay and then you know anybody else try to get i didn't care who it was if it was a girl that's too bad i mean we're just throwing people off to see who could get to the top of this jungle gym now here it here you you get to the top of the hill of the jungle gym and you defend it from anyone else that's getting to the top now it felt pretty good when you're at the top because you could yell out king of the hill until someone takes you out and here's the problem with that whole game because it 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 plays into our whole life sometimes The higher the climb, the greater the what? The fall. The higher the climb, the greater the fall. See, why is that? It's because now there is so much more to lose. And that's the problem with pride or power. Bernie Madoff, if you remember, got 150 years in prison for his $65 billion Ponzi scheme. And here's what he admitted. He admitted that he could not admit to his failure. He could not accept the loss of power. So even though he knew eventually this thing was going to blow up, he continued to live the lie because he did not want to admit his failure. The higher the climb, the greater the fall. You see, pride is at the root of power and it runs deep and it can surface in many Different ways and we can easily become this product of our environment pride wells up and how well I do or how Well, I perform the more accolades the more pressure and that is why Performance enhancing drugs are such a big problem in sports in order to get ahead to get the contract to be ahead of the next Person you have to have the edge whether it was Lance Armstrong Sammy Sosa Mark McGuire so many others admitted to doping because of the pressure to do well and to have the edge on someone else. What does that come from? That comes from pride and power. So, so power and pride go hand in hand and it comes in so many forms and, and it can come in the form. Maybe you think, well, okay, that's not my world. Okay. I'm not having a problem with performance drugs, pastor. Okay. That's not my problem. Okay. I'm just glad I get out of bed in the morning. That's good enough for me. Okay. That's not my problem. But see what happens is it can come in many other different forms. Maybe, maybe the power comes in this form for you. Maybe it's wanting to be in control, or maybe it's fits of rage, or maybe it's not willing to submit to anyone. It always has to be my way. Uh, it, it can it, it can be as simple as not being able to say you're sorry. So how do we overcome this counterfeit God of power, or I call it the best seat syndrome? And we're going to dig into this in the scripture. See, I want you to remember The proclivity of my heart is to take care of me. And so to have the best seat, to have the best seat is symbolic of power because we want to take care of ourselves. And that's the problem with pride and power. I always want to take care of myself. So here it is. Whether, listen, whether it's finding the best parking spot at the grocery store. Or getting the best table at a restaurant. Don't we brag about getting the best parking spot? Am I the only one that does that? You'll be pulling in because when you pull in, you always pull into the back of the parking lot and you're thinking, okay, do I take the risk and go all the way down to the front? Not to find anything, only to swing back around, or should I just park in the back and take that long walk, especially when it's January, right? And you're like praying the whole way, hoping that there's one open spot, and you see that, you know, 105 year old grandmother pulling in, and you just cut right in front of her and say, hey, it's all to grabs here, you know, too bad. There's one back there, just bad, right? or, Or you find that spot and you say, man, wasn't this a good spot? You know, and, and we brag about it. We're like, "Wow, this was a wonderful, wonderful." Well, why is that? Or it's like our fam. We love going to Syracuse basketball games. I try to go to one or two a year, and uh, we always the dome is huge. And if if you if if you know anything about the dome, we always end up in the three twelve section. Can I get an amen for the three twelve section? That's way up, as high as you can look up by the carrier uh, air conditioners. Okay. We were actually behind them one year, and we had a duck like this. So we're way up, and we, it, who, they look like ants down there, right? And you're looking down at the seats on the court, and you're drooling because, boy, wouldn't it be nice to be right on the court and be right behind the player's bench? And just see their sweat and their stink and just that would be wonderful instead of way up here. And I can remember I took Lily for the first time when she was eight and they had a tea with the game was televised and they had the about six about four minutes into the game, five minutes the game, they do a television timeout. And so everybody stopped and they went up to court. Lily looked at me and she goes, Is the game over now, Daddy? No, honey, we got a long we got a lot longer. She thought that was so cute. She liked the game, but she thought the game was over after four minutes. I I, I Whether it's an NBA game where the celebrities on the courtside seats behind the players, Jack Nicholson, Spike Lee, um, those are the best seats, right? The best seats are down the court, except when you're in church. The best seats are in the back of the church, furthest away from the pastor and closest to the exit. All you people in the back row, I love you guys. God bless you guys in the back row. Woo-woo, give it up for the back row people. All right. They got the best seat. Okay. Now, listen. Here's the problem. Power is dangerous because it's so closely linked to position. And here's the lie that we follow. I have more significance because of my position... And because of my position, it gives me more power. And what it ends up becoming is self-serving. I end up using people for my own needs. So power is thinking more of yourself. It's thinking that you have done this and you have to protect it at all costs. So the question we want to answer this morning is, how do we, how do we protect ourselves from the God of power or position? How do we protect ourselves from that? Now, you may be thinking, well, Pastor, I'm not a... A leader of an organization or, you know, head of a company. I want you to realize Jesus deals with every single one of us here because he's not only talking to those people, he's talking to you and I too. It all comes back to who is in control of my life. If I'm in control, then power and position is going to be a thing that drives me. I'm going to be looking out for myself. And this is why it's so important as we're followers of jesus christ to understand this and and, and this is what it means if we're going to truly put this power and pride at bay in our hearts and walked humbly before the lord we have to live gospel-centered lives and what do i mean by that the gospel message is simply this jesus came to give his life for sinners Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for our sin. Jesus came to serve and not be served and give his life for you and I. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son, which we didn't deserve it, earn it, merit it. By God's grace, he gave us his son. That while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. That's the gospel message. And I want you to notice the key points in this message. Jesus laid his life down for who? for us. He did it for you and I. We we couldn't do it ourselves. We were lost without God, heading to eternity of hell and damnation apart from God. But God in his love and his grace for us didn't leave us in that condition. He sent his son and for those who put their faith and God's Son can find redemption. And so all this is about sacrifice. It's about laying our lives down. So Jesus came to serve. He took the role of a servant. He was completely obedient to the Father. So if I'm going to live a gospel-centered life as a follower of Jesus Christ, I have to realize it's not about me. Life is not about It's not about my comfort. It's not about me always getting the best or always getting things my way. It's not about my honor or my what? Accomplishments. So let's understand this. Because if we understand this correctly, we will remove or disarm the idol of power in our lives. And I believe one of the best scriptures for this is Jesus brings this out as he's at a very well to do house and eating dinner. And it's found in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Let me read this for you. Because what Jesus does here. In the setting of these so-called religious people, Jesus heals a man, and then he kind of schools these Pharisees on what's really important and how they always prop themselves up to always be seen in the best light, to always be seated in the best seated position of power, and Jesus kind of schools them a little bit to to expose the the reality of their hearts and hopefully expose the reality of our hearts. So let's read this, Luke 14, 1-11. It said, One Sabbath... When he went to dine at the house of the ruler, the ruler of the Pharisees. Whoa! He was Jesus. If you think about it, You have arrived if you had dinner at the house, the ruler of the Pharisees. This was a big deal. So you think Jesus would have been honored? Do you think uh, Jesus would have been flattered? No, Jesus gets right in their grill and just irritates them. This is what I love about Jesus because he exposes their hearts and the motivation of their heart. So as they're there, you think Jesus is going to eat dinner and leave? You think that's what he's going to do? No, Jesus isn't going to do that. Jesus is going to show these men the trueness of their heart and what they're really serving. They weren't really serving God. They were serving who? Themselves and how they look. So here he is. He's at the ruler of the Pharisees. And they were doing what? They were watching him carefully. They were just want. It was a trap. They wanted to embarrass Jesus. He knew that. He still went. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. This, this is kind of a person that retains a lot of fluids. It was very uh, disabling for a person. Verse 3, And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Okay, now Jesus just threw the bomb into this whole dinner. And they, and they, uh, they remained silent. Then he took him and he healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you have not a son? Or an ox that had fallen into a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Because in their own laws and their own demands to try to be religious on the outside, you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath, not even heal on the Sabbath. So Jesus just blew that away for them. So he's irritating them. Not only did he do that, heal the man, but look what happens next. He says, now he told a parable to those who were invited. And when he noticed how they chose the place of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding fe- feast, do not sit in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give up your place to this person. Man, that's embarrassing. And then you will begin then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited go sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes he may say to you friend move up higher then you will be honored in the presence of all those who sit at the table with you. Now listen closely what Jesus says to all these Pharisees. You don't think he's dropping a bomb in the room right now? Here he goes, ready. For anyone who exalts himself will be what Humbled. And he who humbles himself will be what? That is the key for breaking the idol of power and pride and position in our life. See, this is the who's who at the Pharisees' house. And Jesus Jesus no, notices a couple things about the religious here. One is that the the rules became more important than people, and Jesus wanted to expose their hearts for not really caring about people as much as they did their rules, right? Cared much more about, "Hey, we got to make sure we do all the rules" than they do about people. Their rules became so cumbersome that they used their rules to look righteous, but that wasn't the case. They made it so difficult that even if you did anything on the Sabbath, they would tell you that you are disobeying God. And that would include healing someone because it was considered work. But I want you to notice the other thing that Jesus deals with here. Jesus deals with this very thing of addressing their pride and how much they admired their position and the way we fight this pride and power is through gospel living. So what do I mean? We fight it through humility. Let me give you three quick things as we wrap this thing up. Let me give you three quick things on how we fight pride and position and how we fight the the how we fight being easily offended. Right? Cuz we can easily get so offended When someone does something and and what it reveals is there's some pride and position issues within our heart. That is not the follower of Jesus Christ. That that is, if if we walk with pride and we're easily offended, there's something wrong with what? My heart. It's not the other person necessarily. There's something wrong within my heart. If, If I'm quick to argue... If I'm quick to get in fights, if I, if I constantly I, I, I am confrontational with people all the time, there's something wrong within my heart. So there's three ways we break this. Number one, Jesus taught us, take the last seat. Take the last seat. Sammy Morris was from Africa, and he came here to college. He went to Taylor University. And the president was so glad that he came and wanted to honor Sammy. He said to him, the president asked him, what room do you want? You can have any room you want. And this is what Sammy said. If there is a room that no one else wants, give that one to me. And what happened is the president said he turned away with tears because he asked himself, would I take the room that no one else wanted? Take the last seat. You see... The the wrong attitude we have is this. It's an attitude of entitlement. Jesus was coming against the mindset with the religious at the Pharisees' house that they felt they were entitled to that seat because they felt like they were the most important person. And so we've got to break that that issue, that attitude of entitlement. See, the mindset is, I deserve this seat because I'm entitled to it, right? Right? Remember Miller time? You deserve that Miller beer for the weekend because you did what? You worked hard all week, right? So go ahead. Boy, I'm really dating myself. Have a little Miller time, right? You're entitled to it because you worked hard all week. See, but the opposite is true as a follower of Jesus Christ. The opposite is true because I deserve nothing and everything that is given to me is by God's Wonderful grace. I I, I, uh, heard this story, and I thought it was just a wonderful story, a true story of Marshall University in West Virginia. And Marshall University in the 70s lost basically their entire football team coaches in a horrible plane accident. And there was only a couple freshmen that didn't travel for that game. So basically he had like four or five players left on this whole entire football squad. And what they were going to do is they were going to cancel the next year, and these uh, football players wanted to have a team. Well, the problem is you can't just have a team with, with underclassmen and freshmen. It was against NCAA rules, so they had to change those rules. And they hired a coach, and the, the, you know, basically the, the town wasn't really behind it. And so finally they got it all through. They, they assembled this ragtag team of uh, players to actually have a, a, a football team the next year, and they needed to run a very simple offense. So what they did was they looked around the country to see who ran a simple offense. And the coach said, hey, there's one team that doesn't. It's West Virginia University, which is very close to Marshall University. Let's go ask the coach if they can give us tapes of their offense. Now, if you know anything about football, no coach in his right mind is going to let another coach come into his viewing room and watch all these tapes of how they run their offense. So he went in. And at the time, the coach at Western University was Bobby Bowden, who eventually coached uh, Florida State and uh, won some championships. Great guy, Christian guy. And they went in, and uh, he, they asked him, and they thought, you know, let's see what happens. And he said, sure, you can do it. And not only that, but when they were in the viewing room looking at all the simple offense, how they ran their simple offense, watching tape after tape, he goes, whatever you need, my coaches will help you. Do you guys need lunch? We'll bring you guys lunch. They couldn't believe it. Well, when they were finishing up the taping, what they noticed is some of the players were going out to practice. And on the back of the helmets of the players, it said MU, Marshall University with a cross, honoring all the players that died in the airplane accident. You see, this was a coach from West Virginia that took the last seat. He didn't care about himself or his pride or or whether or not they were going to be better than this team. He took the last seat. He lived out the gospel message, even in his coaching. Can I get an amen? Right. So take the last seat. What's the next thing here? Not only take the last seat, but take the least seat. Jesus said, when you come into a wedding... Take the least seat of honor. Don't uh, don't take the best unless someone more honorable than you comes up and gives up your seat. I love this story about Dave Thomas who started Wendy's. How many of you know Dave Thomas? Uh, died and just a great guy. I worked at Wendy's through high school. Loved it. It's a good place to work. Half off on your food. Anybody brought the burgers back? Up for dibs. Great place to work. Okay. Um, loved Wendy's um, uh, Dave Thomas never graduated from high school. In fact, what he got was his GED. And this is what Dave Thomas says. Dave Thomas said way before he said, I got my GED. I got my MBA. Now you think, well, how did he do that? Well, this is what Dave Thomas calls his MBA mop bucket attitude. He said before he did anything, he would always serve. Now, he was a believer, and you can see he lived out the gospel message. You see, this is the gospel message. It has to center in our attitudes. If Christ is center in my life, it has to be displayed in the way I live my life. There is nothing beneath me. Jesus gave everything for me. If I understand, listen closely, if I understand that I've been saved by grace, right, then there is nothing, nothing that Jesus cannot ask of me. Now catch this mindset, because if I'm saved by works, right, then I can dicker with God. If, if I'm saved by works, well, I say, well, God, I did this for you. I did enough, so don't ask anything more of me. But if I'm saved by grace... I've got to have an MBA. I've got to have a mop bucket attitude. Because because I will say to myself, if if there's a toilet that's plugged in the church, those with MBAs get the plunger. Jim says amen. He knows what that's like being around the church. Sandra says amen. Gary says amen, right? Those that do the maintenance around our church. If I've got an MBA, I go get the plunger. I once heard a pastor say, say, say this and it just stuck with me because many people say to pastor, and I get this too. They say, pastor, I want to do something around the church, but I just can't find anything to do. And the pastor's reply was this. Maybe you're not looking low enough. See, that's a gospel-centered attitude. Sometimes we're looking too high because we're looking for the position where I get the most accolades not the NBA not the thing that God wants me to do maybe so check your heart here I want to show you this vid this video and uh, I when I saw this I loved it and what this video is let me just let me let me tee it up for you here this was a championship basketball game and the the team was the winning team was ahead by like 20 25 points there was a, 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 a manager on the team, a boy that had special needs, and the coach put him in on the end of the game, and they wanted him to score. Now, this team is ahead by 20, 25 points. I want you to notice what the other team did. Not so much the winning team, but the team that was getting shellacked by 20, 25 points. Go ahead and show the video.
1: It was the CIF Southern Section Division VI Boys Basketball Championship. The Desert Chapel Eagles against the Trinity Classical Academy Knights. With a minute and a half to play in the game, Trinity led by 23, thanks to Ian Cato's school record time 37 points in the game. Knights head coach John Brooks then put into the game freshman Bo Howell. A special needs student with developmental delays who serves primarily as the team's manager. Bo put up a shot but missed. Trinity's Trey Christopher got the rebound and passed it back to Bo for another shot. Eagles head coach Alfonso Alvarez saw what the Knights were hoping to do and called a timeout. In the huddle, he told his players to let Bo score. He tried again. And then...
0: And we were honored. Uh, We just, we felt that in our hearts. That's all we're all about. So...
1: Bo got the game ball and was named player of the game For SCV TV, I'm Dave Caldwell
0: I love that story For this reason, the coach on the other team Called the timeout and said let him score See, the coach and the other team, the reason why I like that story is the other team that won was way ahead. The team that was behind could have felt humiliated, could have felt pride, could have said, well, let's score a couple more goals, field goals. But they didn't. They let the least score. That's gospel-centered living. That's exactly what Jesus tells us to do and so here's the last thing not not only do we do we do we take the last seat the least seat but ultimately Jesus says I want you to take my seat I want you to look at me as your example and I think one of the best verses write this down write this on your hand write this on your spouse's forehead write this in your Bible whatever it takes write this verse down and memorize it because I believe this is the thing that will disarm pride and power and position our life when we look at exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and I. Philippians 2, 1 through 8 says if, and this is what Paul says: if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, sympathy, complete my joy by being the same mind, having the same love, being full accord in one mind. And here's what I love, what he says here, ready? Philippians two, verse three. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking on the form of a... Servant, Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, when we come and we take communion, that's exactly what we're recognizing. We are recognizing what Jesus Christ did for us. How Jesus hung on a cross, naked for you and I. He humbled himself, didn't have to because Christ was perfect, but he humbled himself to become a servant, to serve you and I, to be obedient to the Father, to win us back, to be our substitute, to be our penalty for our sin. And when you get that into your mind and you get that into your spirit and you get that into your heart, there is nothing that God cannot ask you to do that is beneath us. And what it does is it rips the pride in the power, in the position from our lives and we become servants. And so my prayer for you this morning as we take communion is what Paul said to the Corinthians, examine your hearts before you do this. And so as we pray and as we take communion, let me just say communion's is open to anyone who's accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior and has followed him and If you haven't done that, we're going to pray and you can do that in a moment and and pray that prayer with me and, and take communion and glorify Christ in your life. But as we begin to pray, I want you to realize this one thing. That if there's any pride in your heart or unforgiveness or something you've held on to, that Christ is kind of just, he, he's, he's needling your heart, he's, he's speaking to your heart. Give that to him. Humble yourself. Even if that's going to someone else and asking for forgiveness, even if it's humbling yourself to someone that doesn't deserve it, allow the gospelness, the, the centeredness of the gospel to grip your heart in life so that it doesn't keep you in that pride. Because what eventually that pride will do, it will destroy you. It will destroy you. And Christ wants you to walk in his freedom. Christ wants you to walk in his humility because that's the best place to be. Let Christ be your example today. Come to him and say, Christ, I can't do without you. I have to allow you to live through me because I can't do this in my own because my pride... And everything else gets so in the way, but I need you to do it for me. I need you to live through me. And Christ will do that for you, what we can't do for ourselves. Amen? And that's what communion is all about as we take it. So I want to pray for you. And we're going to watch a short video clip just to get your hearts right for communion. The ushers are going to come. They're going to serve you. The worship team is going to lead us in a song. But let's do this, this this month. I know we take communion every month. Let's make it very reflective today. I want you to listen to the words. I want you to watch the video. I want you to get your heart right before the Lord. Ask the Lord. Don't, don't be thinking, man, this message was so, I wish so-and-so would have been here. Because they really need to hear this. And I can't wait till after service so I can run out and get the CD and give it to this person. Listen, that's all fine and dandy. But let God speak to your heart. Amen? Let him do what he needs to do in your heart first. So let, let's pray. And let's just ask God. To speak to our hearts now. Lord, we come before you now. And we thank you for what you did for us on that cross 2,000 years ago. We are so undeserving, but God, you did it for us. And Lord, I pray that you would take away any pride or any position that we've placed ourselves in, that you would humble us today, that you would live through us. We thank you for your patience and not giving up on us. So, Lord, we ask that you would just move in our hearts and our lives. And I thank you for what these symbolize, your body that was given for us, your blood that was shed for us. You did this for us. So, Lord, just speak to our hearts as we just reflect upon you today. In Jesus' wonderful name. In Jesus' wonderful name.